The Guardian. The actions uh, taken by the ECB proves that uh, we shall defend uh, the euro, whatever it takes. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, a huge moment for Europe. Has the continent averted a Lehman-style meltdown? Europe was attacked and uh, Europe reacted. Or is the Greek bailout just too late? This morning's agreement will ensure that any attempt to weaken the stability of the euro will fail. If Europe's finance ministers can't get on top of this situation, how bad could it get? Basically, our leaders have torn up the Maastricht Treaty. The no-bailout clause is no longer, and the European Central Bank has become a fiscal agent for the weaker member countries. And Gordon Brown finally steps down after three years as Prime Minister and ten years as Chancellor. But what economic legacy will he leave behind? This morning I've had conversations with the President of the European Council and the President of the European Central Bank. I have said I would do all I could to ensure that a stable, strong and principled government is formed. This is The Business from The Guardian. And in the studio today, we have Will Hutton, columnist for The Observer and one of the paper's foremost cheerleaders for the Euro. He also wrote the book Gordon Brown should have put into practice at the Treasury, the state we're in. And we've got Jill Trainer, The Guardian's deputy city editor and eagle-eyed watcher of banks. Last but not least, we have David Marsh, one of Britain's leading experts on the European single currency and author of The Euro, The Politics of the New Global Currency. So, over one long weekend, EU ministers have cobbled together a 750 billion euro fighting fund to save the single currency from disaster, or so they hope. The deal came just in the nick of time amid scenes of chaos on the streets of Athens. Here's how the deal was announced by the President of the European Commission, Jose Manuel Barroso. The lesson from this crisis is if you want a monetary union, you should promote also an economic union. That does not mean every member state make exactly the same at the same time, but it certainly means reinforced economic governance and respect of all the obligations the member states have under the Stability and Growth Pact. EU ministers hope the deal provides the kind of shock and awe that will scare speculators into finally laying off weak euro economies. Europe was attacked and uh, Europe reacted. If we talk about the role of Europe in the world in the future, it's going to be decided by how well we managed our economies. If we are seen as either a model for the future or a museum of the past, uh, and that will be decided by the commitment to reform of the different economic structural reform of the European governments. If you don't do that, you get budget deficits or current account deficits and political deficits. The size of the package was such that it took everyone by some surprise. Um, and I think that was what was needed. Uh, we do have some experience in Sweden from similar crises in the early 90s. And it was crucial, I think, to get everyone on board uh, and surprise the markets as, as I think this package did. A variety of EU finance ministers there. But not everyone is impressed. Here's Daniel Gross from the Centre of European Policy Studies in Brussels. Basically, our leaders have torn up the Maastricht Treaty. The no bailout clause is no longer, 
and the European Central Bank has become a fiscal agent for the weaker member countries. Maybe it was unavoidable to kill the old euro, to save and create a new euro, but now really the hard work starts. How can one make this work in the long run? And there the signs are not so encouraging. David Marsh, let's begin with you. Is this EU bailout for Greece, Spain, Portugal, is it anything more than a temporary measure or is it something that might last? Well, first of all, you have to say that they did have to act. President Obama got on the phone to Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, and told her to get her house in order because uh, your remark was quite right. This could have been a Lehman-style crisis which could have brewed over the weekend. There could have been bank lines in jeopardy, paralysis of the interbank markets and so on because there were so many fears about the southern states in euro area and the banks who are collectively owed hundreds of billions of euros of debt. So they did have to do something. But of course, it is just a sticking plaster. The patient is still severely ill. They should have started a long time back, as the Irishman might have said, but they should have, of course, put something like this into place two or three years ago. It's perfectly obvious that some of the southern states were drifting onto the rocks. So yes, they have bought time, but not very much time, I think a few weeks, a few months at the very most. Yes, they have effectively torn up the Maastricht Treaty, The Germans, who are the paymasters, and they're the people we're relying on to finance all this package, are not going to be happy at all with this because they are now taking away the independence of the European Central Bank. It's a different sort of treaty, a different sort of construct. The euro will be weak. It will be potentially inflationary. I don't think the German parliament or the German people will actually go along with this. And we've seen already the first signs in a very, very important move. The president of the Bundesbank, who of course is part of the ECB Council, he's come out in public against the idea that they are now buying up the loans of weak countries, the quantitative easing, which was decided and was really, they were bounced into this after apparently not even having discussed this at a previous meeting, only last Thursday. Suddenly they decide this epochal step. So I do think it's going to be a lot of ugly scenes still to come. And when you say Obama got on the phone to Merkel, what kind of international pressure was put on the Eurozone leaders to come up with this deal? Well, Angela Merkel has not come out of this smelling of roses. She had an absolutely terrible weekend. She went off to Moscow to have a wonderful time celebrating the 65th anniversary of the defeat of Nazi Germany on Red Square. She goes to Brussels. She then hears that her finance minister, who's the most important part of the cabinet, couldn't go to the finance minister meeting over the weekend because he's ill, he's, uh, he's unfortunately par- paralysed, so he's not in the best state to fight all these battles. She has come under huge pressure to show leadership. She would rather just sit at home, really, and worry about the pressing problems she's got in Germany. The problem is the Germans think that they're actually quite poor, because lots of states, lots of towns are actually going bankrupt in Germany, because they've exceeded their limits in many ways, whereas the rest of us think that they're still very rich and they're going to bail us all out. So she's in an impossible situation. It is hugely ironic that the whole question about monetary union, this was set up to show that Europe could lead the world and could be a rival to the United States. And here we are, the IMF, led, of course, by a Frenchman, a very imperious Frenchman, is really telling them what to do. And President Obama is ringing up uh, Mrs. Merkel and saying, look, you've got to act, you've got to show leadership. So the leadership is actually coming from America. It's not coming from Europe, and it's certainly not coming from Germany. Jill... One of the reasons why Obama and everyone else was so interested is because their banks were, were in the firing line of this, weren't they? Well, it's clear that on Friday afternoon, none of the bankers really wanted to admit it, but all those money market rates that people started looking at during the credit crunch were starting to Pop spike up again. We weren't in kind of mad credit crunch territory, but things didn't look good, and it 
And it became apparent uh, over the weekend, I think, to all these leaders, they knew that they were in a situation where if the markets opened on Monday morning and there wasn't an answer to the euro crisis, whatever we want to call it, then that there was the potential for banks to get into pretty serious difficulty again. You've got to remember that a lot of these banks, especially the continental European banks, had been buying up Portuguese, Spanish debt, because the yield looked good compared to what they could get anywhere else, and it felt kind of risk-free. And clearly they were then sitting on losses on those kind of more indebted countries that would have been very painful for them to take, especially given they're already sitting on big losses anyway. Um, so it, 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 there was a problem there, and it, and it needed to be fixed. How have markets reacted since? Uh, well, obviously, Monday was a great day for the markets, and it's particularly in continental Europe, but stock markets at least. Um, I would say Tuesday, things aren't looking quite as good. P- people are starting to sit back and reflect a bit, talk, you know, realising that some of the things that David's talking about, that this is really a temporary fix. The euro is, as he's already saying, looking weaker again. So it's too early to tell, honestly. But I mean, even yesterday, people were talking about the fact that this is a temporary fix. And one analyst said to me, maybe they've given themselves a year. <laughs> maybe that looks a bit optimistic now. Will Hutton, how much do you think this deal changes the face of the Eurozone? Um, Well, you either save the euro uh, or you let it go. I mean, the weekend was a a dramatic weekend. I mean, if there hadn't been this package, uh, then I think the pressure... I mean, uh, one crucial moment was when Trichet showed um, um, the leaders of... Know, the member states, the 16 member states, how wide um, using German debt as a benchmark um, the spreads were on a whole variety of um, sovereign debt in the in the euro area. I mean, 300, 400, 500 basis points, and it was just an impossible position. You had to do something. And it was a witching hour. I mean, either Europe has to um, integrate more and it has to use the months ahead, and there may not be month- many of them, to do, I think, two big things. I think there has to be um, a European monetary fund uh, which imposes um, fiscal disciplines inside the European Union and there has to be um, some really quite big deficit reduction programmes, not just in Greece but also elsewhere. Um, And the the second thing is is that... um, there is a problem with um, particular member state financial systems. I mean, the Irish and the Spanish um, grew um, their banking systems very large in the last 10 years because they were euro-area countries, and they kind of, in a way, gamed the lack of regulation in the eurozone. And there needs to be a common financial regulation. There needs to be an early uh, system of early resolution for banks in trouble so you can preemptively act on them. Um, and these things... Going to be driven through. I mean, and it has big implications for London. This, um, the British aren't going to like the emergence of pan-European financial regulation. There, there's talk of, I mean, the, of, of the panoply of runners and riders at the moment. There's talk of a European rating agency. Um, the European Parliament have, part, have just passed the Alternative Investment Directive, um, wanting quite close regulation on hedge funds, which I support, but most people in London don't. Um, and if we have a Cameron-led government, even with the Liberal Democrats in it, uh, you can see how within weeks it's going to be daggers drawn and the Europeans needing to do things to save the euro 
and a British government saying over our dead body to the extent that these have implications even for Britain, not a member of the Eurozone area. If they don't do these things, I'm very, I've begun to be very concerned about what may happen. I think the Euro is actually a good idea. Um, I think that, I mean, the problem for Europeans is actually living with the Germans. We've tried floating rates, it hasn't worked. We've tried a fixed exchange rate mechanism, it hasn't worked. I mean, actually, in the end, you've just got to um, do the structural things you need to do to your economy to live alongside the German economy. I think if you're worried, um, Will, then we should all be <laughs> concerned. Because, after all, uh, you, you have been a supporter of all this all along. And I think the, the problem really is that the euro did start off, as we all say, with a birth defect, that there wasn't a political union to go with it. I think everybody would agree with that. The, the, what we're now trying to do is to bring in some sort of political union through the back door, a fiscal union, a transfer union, call it what you will. That has really been decided over the weekend by the technocrats, by the finance ministers. There's been no due process. When NATO was put into being, for instance, and you did have a commitment that everybody would stand together, and theoretically if Bonn came under attack, London or Washington would bleed. Um, that was the result of due process, sovereign decisions by sovereign governments. The, the point is the people in Europe don't actually want a political union, even though we all know that needs to be in place for this to work. And what we've had, we've had other people deciding to spend the Germans and the other surplus countries money. That's what's happened in the absence of the finance minister, who was away sick at the weekend. And I don't think this will stand. And therefore, I do agree with you, Will, that you do need to have pan-European regulation, all those things. I don't think we're going to see it. I don't really think that uh, the powers that be are going to be in the position to decide all those great and, and useful things, because they will be so tied up with stitching together the essential emergency that we have now. Um, therefore, I, I'm afraid to say that I think the hedge funds and so on will carry on uh, reaping uh, the b benefit of all this. I think untrammeled capitalism, um, which I also am not very happy with, will emerge as the winner of this crisis. Will, if we were going to have a closer political union in the Eurozone, would it really make sense to have Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy all involved in that as well? Or should we just return to something closer to the old Deutschmark block? Well, look, I mean, just to have a helicopter view for 30 seconds, and back to your question, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I mean, Europe's been trying to live with Germany for 125 years, and it hasn't been a particularly successful story. And, you know, you can say, let's just give up because the hedge funds are right, and um, you know, European states will be uh, satellites, moons around the German sun, kind of devaluing uh, as they need to and not making the structural adjustment that needs to. And Germany becomes the de facto kind of pole state in Europe around which everyone has to adjust. And, it, and that has been, in the past, the recipe for extraordinary economic and political tension. Or you can say that um, the European Union, which is actually about trying to solve the German problem, uh, or as uh, a way of thinking about it, um, you know, <laughs> has just got to um, set in train um, the mechanisms um, to do just that. And I've listed them. And they, don't, they, they can be consistent with uh, sovereign states. I mean, sovereign states can agree to the forms of economic governance that I've suggested, the European Monetary Fund, pan-financial pan regulation, early resolution measures. These are um, uh, 
these are what's required if you're going to make this system work. If, if, sorry, but if I may just come in and join your helicopter just for a moment, I, I think that this German problem is actually overstated. The Germans are actually quite weak. They, they appear to be strong because they've managed to coax everybody else into a fixed-rate system whereby, whereby they've basically captured their export customers. The way to beat the Germans is actually by devaluing, which is what Britain has done. And also the Germans are not the strongest country in Europe in terms of where they were 30 years ago. Just a small but interesting fact, the German proportion of the GDP of Europe, whether it's 12 or 8 or 16 or 27 now, is less than it was in 1980. Um, when uh, just before Chancellor Schmidt backed down, because they've grown at a very low rate, as we all know. And also the Germans are losing population. The Germans will be the fourth biggest country in Europe in 2060. Uh, the Turks and the British will be the biggest in population. Um, and it, it, will people be saying the British are going to run roughshod over all the others? Well, maybe they will. Maybe they'll be right. But I don't think... I think we shouldn't get carried away with this sort of German idea that everybody's revolving around the German sun. I, th- I think that's pretty pathetic, actually. And you're starting to sound like somebody from France. That's, that's been the hang-up with the French for 30 or 40 years. And I think we should get away from that. But I think, I think if I may say, that's a um, completely ahistorical and innocent view of Europe. I mean, you... Uh, I've been called many things. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, even my wife wouldn't uh, call me innocent. I mean, you're, uh, it's you're, not innocent at all. We are actually changing now. The, the Germans are up to their eyes in problems. Do you think the Germans are, the Germans are going are. to march off with jackboots now? No, uh, simply no, because not. other no, countries no, no, owe no. the money. You know, are they going no, to kind of take over no, Athens and run the fiscal authority in Athens and put in the stormtroopers? I really don't think no, they no, are. That's not what I said. But I said that, they, I'm, taking, I'm saying that there's a, you know. The baton of who is the number one world exporter passes from Germany to the United States to China and back to um, Germany. It was an astonishing fact that actually just in 2006 and 2007, I think, Germany was the world's biggest exporter. I mean, this is not... Uh, it has built a formidable export so machine. So we should be worried sh- about them exporting let me finish. refrigerators. Let me finish. No, no. I mean, they used to their share of Their share of European markets. Their share of, and now their sh- they export refrigerators. No, but it is, I mean, if you're, only, if you're in an economic union, I mean, if, you're, if they're the principal state, the principal economy in Europe, how um, other Europeans manage their trading relationships with this um, formidable competitor, uh, you know, um, and all the tensions, political and trade tensions that flow from that, I mean, has to be managed in some way. Britain we're all, we're manages it. Britain manages it. I'm not saying we're doing it perfectly, but we didn't allow ourselves to be coaxed into a fixed-rate system, which is actually very bad for the countries around them. And that is sure. a self, that's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. The, I mean, the, how well the, did the, Britain the German, the German trade surplus with uh, Britain is, is in, indeed very large, but it's gone up by far more with the countries that they've managed to coax into this fixed exchange rate mechanism. The whole point about EMU, actually, is to protect German exports so and to give them a kind of secret guard of exporting. That's how it's worked. Yes, that's that's, how it's worked. That, that's, that's how it's worked. Well, that was the idea. That was the idea. And that's how it's worked. I mean, they, and they have gone up. But, I that mean, was the idea. It's not just how it's worked. That was the idea. No, it was not the sole idea. It not was, the sole idea. One of the very important ideas. Come on, come on. It was not the sole idea. It was one of the very important You just said it was the idea. It was not the idea it was a bargain as you well as you well know about how to manage re, you know reunify germany i mean that's what the that's what the french wanted to do back in maastricht now it hasn't come off has it i mean and, exactly the, and the so now you're faced with it you're faced with a fork and you are literally faced with a with a i mean a big existential choice i mean either um, the euro 
just becomes um, organized around those countries which can live with the Germans in a European Union. Um, which is about six or seven countries. Which is about six or seven countries. Yeah. Uh, or um, the euro ceases and we go back to national currencies with the turmoil that that will produce, which is extremely bad news for Britain, by the way. Or you try to um, do a very European thing, which is to come up with um, this, a, seria, an, a series of institutions which could make this euro work. And that's the path that they're on. Um, Jill Traynham, before this turns into a high table version of Bolton v Campbell, um, <laughs> let's just talk about Britain's role in all of this. Uh, because, as Will says, we could have a, uh, a Cameron government fairly soon. And one of the things we know about Cameron government is it's quite keen on protecting Britain's sort of fairly light touch rate financial regulation. So how are they going to take on all these attacks on our hedge funds and our private equity groups? Oh, that's a question and a half, isn't it? I mean, just going back to the bailout, I mean, clearly Alistair Darling was the man who was there and having to do all this and clearly having to keep the Tories and um, and the Lib Dems informed of, of what was going on and has tried to keep Britain's exposure to the bailout or whatever this... Euro tarp, whatever it is we want to call it, um, to eight, 8 billion, so we're told. Let's see what happens. Um, look, you know, the Conservatives have said a number of things in public and seem to be saying other things in private. In public, we know there were things they want to do about regulating the city, you know, get rid of the FSA, give more powers to the Bank of England, um, do all sorts of things to bankers' bonuses. There are, as you know, uh, ideas around that privately uh, the Conservatives are saying something quite different to the banking industry and something quite different to the hedge fund industry. We know that big players in the hedge fund industry are big contributors to the Tory coffers. Um, so I think it's one of those situations where we're going to have to sit back and just wait and see how, this, how assuming it is a Conservative government, operates in practice. But as we know, they do have a Eurosceptic approach and maybe they will be more inclined to fight Europe. Let's leave that there. Leave your thoughts on this story on our blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Finally. Time's up for Gordon Brown. The reason that we have a hung parliament is that no single party and no single leader was able to win the full support of the country. As leader of my party, I must accept that that is a judgment on me. I therefore intend to ask the Labour parties to set and train the processes needed for its own leadership election. I would hope that it would be completed in time for the new leader to be in post by the time of the Labour Party conference. I will play no part in that contest. I will back no individual candidate. True to form, the folk in the cheap seats, by which I mean, of course, the political commentariat, have already had their say on his legacy. But we thought it was only right to let the economists and wonks give their view of the former Iron Chancellor and the man who saved the banking system. Will Hutton, you were present at the creation of New Labour, so let's begin with you. It is a slightly tragic um, story. I think Brown made the wrong conclusion from losing the 1992 general election and um, backed off a bunch of policies that had he implemented in 97 would have mitigated I think the worst of the credit boom and the bubble economy that um, he presided over as his chancellor I mean he's not I mean he will get good marks for what he did in 2008 for the banking crisis but um, I mean he's right up there as one of the people who helped create it I mean uh, Bill Clinton has said uh, how if he lived his life again, he would not have repealed Glass-Steagall. Um, we've heard nothing of that type from Gordon Brown. And then his, his premiership, which um, you know, he, never, he never managed to develop a political story about what a Brown premiership was for. 
um, it became for saving the banks and, and, and launching economic recovery. But um, there was an opportunity um, in the middle of that crisis and in the months that followed it to do something big and bold about reconstructing British finance. And interestingly enough, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democratic Party took that, have at least made noises they would like to go in that direction, and Gordon Brown um, shrank from it. I think history will be quite unkind about him, and I think um, for the Blairites, he's the man who, can, who undermined the Blairite project, and for the Labour Party, he's the person who's um, left them in a very weakened position. So I think the... The judgment of Gordon Brown is not going to be very generous. We'll see. David Marsh, theatre goes will know you as a character in The Power of Yes by David Hare, and you were quite critical of Brown there. Um, is that because we're just seeing him through the prism of the financial crisis? The Labour Party as a whole, and Gordon Brown in particular, saw the financial sector as the geese laying the golden eggs, and uh, I think it was used to build schools and hospitals that we wouldn't otherwise have. He did make himself a friend of the bankers. You know, he opened up the Lehman Brothers headquarters uh, uh, here in London. Uh, he was very uncritical about Alan Greenspan. There is a plaque to Alan Greenspan in, in the Treasury. But I think history will be slightly unkind to him. He should obviously have drawn the lessons of history. We've seen Jim Callaghan and we've seen John Major, two former chancellors who become prime ministers and don't have a happy time of it and whose experience has been scarred by various notable occurrences. I've got a bit of a soft spot, really, for Brown, and I do think that if he had taken probably what his head was telling him to do, um, he should have gone to the IMF when uh, Rodrigo Rato got the job, whenever that was, you know, six or seven years ago. Uh, He wanted to stay on and do his stint as Chancellor, but above all, he wanted to somehow uh, become Prime Minister and uh, make sure that Tony Blair fulfilled his promise to him. Had he gone to the IMF, he'd have gone there at a time when the developing countries, yeah. the emerging countries, were becoming more important in the world. Now, these uh, emerging countries, which are the big creditor nations of the future and will be basically running the show, he could actually have given them an enormous amount of intellectual and political framework. Uh, will talked rightly about the attempt to get away from the financialization of the economy. Well, that's exactly what people are saying in Asia and Africa and Latin America. He could have made himself the standard bearer of all that and a dour Scottish Presbyterian who's patently not an American but also not a continental European would have been quite the right person to have done that. So that is the real tragedy, I think. Who knows? He could have then requited his... um, ambition uh, politically at home had he actually gone there i know that's all something which is all a total hypothesis but it is a real tragedy that he didn't do what no doubt his intellectual head was telling him he 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 did what his emotional heart um, somehow swung him over to do to somehow stay on and it's been a, 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 a catastrophe despite the fact that the man is patently a good man He's been talking about doing charity work and so on. I mean, that reads to me a a, a much better man ethically than a Tony Blair, who's just basically (laughs) uh, a lawyer who wants to make lots of money. Doing Uh, a speech. And I do actually think that... um, I I do think Brown will do good work, actually. I I really do. And maybe he should turn himself to the emerging world, where I think people would have a soft spot for him, and they would actually forgive him for being actually the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think this talk about getting away from financialization, he, he should turn that into an intellectual crusade. So he should do what Mrs. Thatcher and Tony Blair have done and turn away from Britain for a while, but he should do it with a good purpose, and I think he would actually have a good future. Jill, you um, followed Brown very closely during one particular episode of his career when he was involved in the huge bank bailout of 2008. How do you think he, he pulled that off? I think he's won... Um a claim for that. I don't think anybody can dispute that 
they acted fast. Uh, they acted faster than the than, than the Americans. The, those weekends in in October 2008, when really the banking system had closed down, and everybody was trying to tell us it hadn't, and we all knew it had. Um, he got bankers bashed their heads together, appointed the right people into his government to do something about it. If you remember that extraordinary weekend where he sort of put his emergency cabinet into place, um, you know, he brought people in to to get the situation done and he made the tough decision of putting taxpayers' money into the banking system. You can argue that they took too long to decide what to do about Northern Rock, but, you know, history's history. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Will Hutton, Jill Trainer, and David Marsh too, whose book The Euro, The Politics of New Global Currency, is out now from Yale University Press. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.